Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, welcome everyone. This is your host, Michael Stone. You're listening to We Earth Radio, and I'm very excited about my guest today. Regina Louise is a much sought after speaker, teacher, coach, and author. Her writing and advocacy work have been recognized with numerous awards. The Lifetime movie, I Am Somebody's Child, was based on her best-selling memoirs. She is currently a Hoffman Process teacher. She leads workshops and speaks frequently throughout the country. You can find out more by going to www.iamreginalouise.com. And uh, Regina Louise, welcome. It's so good to have you on the show. Michael Stone, thank you so much. I am honored that you would so generously share your platform with me. Thank you. Uh, you, you have so much to offer. And I want to start out, maybe you could tell us you had quite a childhood and just maybe you could share a little bit about the journey, your early journey and give us a context of uh, the work that we're going to do. Right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I grew up in the same unauthorized foster home, if you will, that my biological mother lived in. My biological mother had her first child, my sister, five years before me, out of an incestuous, non-consensual act. And five years later, I came. My mother was just 18 when she had me, 13 when she had my sister. And after she had me, she left both of us, as far as I know, with the same people who were in charge of caring for her. And because I looked a lot like her and my my spirit was a lot like hers, I grew up with people who felt they needed to exercise my mother's spirit out of me, hence, brutal beatings, starvation, locked in closets, neglect, profound, profound neglect. And I had enough. Mm -hmm. And from the books I read, I learned to read somewhere around three years old. And I began to understand the context of what I read probably around nine, eight, nine. So I understood that there was a better life and that the one I was in was not in the books I read. So I like, I took my orders from Huckleberry Fenn (laughs) and I tied up my metaphorical knapsack. and, And basically what that means is I took the best of my memories. I took the best of the experiences and I left. I, I basically drew 
a line in the sand with my own conscious and my caretakers. And I said, should my caretaker abuse me one more time, that that would be the sign from God for me to leave. And of course that day of reckoning came and my caretaker promised that she was going to literally beat the black off of me. And I could not allow her to do that. So when she commenced to keeping her word and did so with a cut off green water hose, probably after the third strike or maybe more, I grabbed the water hose in midair. And at that time, I was a very fast runner. I won all of the track and field races. I was in our school, the number one placer in the Presidential Physical Fitness Awards. So I had confidence in, in, in my ability to escape my situation by virtue of running. So the day came, as I said, and I grabbed that cut off water hose and I kept my word and I left. And that began my journey into displacement, my journey into being disremembered and unaccounted for, as Toni Morrison so eloquently writes about in Beloved. But that was better than being slowly eviscerated. I could not take a childhood of, as I was frequently informed, you will be like your mother. You will have 15 children by 20 different men. I don't know how that was mathematically possible, but I did not want to try and figure it out or be, I used to hear people say things about how black people always were statistics. And when I would see black bodies positioned in the media, even as a young girl, as bad, I knew that I could never be that. I could never, I always had to be better than the prognosis that people had. And I, even as a young girl, Michael, I felt that people were painting me literally with, I didn't know it was projections back then, but with their projections, with their prognosis of who I was going to be based on their very limited scope of their own possibilities, right? So I all, you know, people talk a lot about authenticity, like, what is it? I want to be authentic, authentic, authentic. For me, authenticity is the willingness, is the courageous nature of committing to listening to the voice within. To me, that is what authenticity is. And so I, from a young girl, committed to listen to that voice, no matter how small. I remember I went through 30 different foster homes and I left most of those homes because of gut, my authentic voice, nudging me to say, you're a pretty little girl. You have an athletic body. You have a effervescent personality. People are drawn to you. Good people, people with, with ill intention. You need to become aware of that and that needs to be your first priority. So 
If you go in a home and it doesn't feel right, leave. Because that's all you have is that feeling. Get out. If you go in a home and there are, are sons, leave. They will always choose their sons over you. If you get in the house and they have daughters, leave. They will always choose their daughters over you. It will always be their word against yours. So I made sure that I adhered to the voices. And sure, there were consequences that came with that, but I was always willing to endure the consequences if the consequences didn't include having someone threaten to beat the black eye of me. So as long as that wasn't in the game, in the bag of consequential tricks, I was willing to endure anything because I felt nothing, nothing felt worse than having my being beaten with a cutoff water hose. Sometimes I was wet down so that the sting of the water hose was remembered, was felt. And so I was able to navigate my childhood, keeping myself safe from predators. Of course, I didn't know that then. And understanding that it was never about my best interest. It was never about me mattering in the face of foster care and social workers. It was just always, I was just a number. I was a case number. And therefore I just needed to be placed somewhere, anywhere, anyhow, to reduce the numbers that were on a social worker's case. It wasn't personal. It wasn't about love. It wasn't about nurturing. It was about bureaucracy. And I overheard the staff all the time in the ways in which they spoke about people like me, black people, females. So I always had the upper hand in understanding their motives, their intentions. I was the type of child that read the DSM too. And so when they said things that I was oppositional, that I was schizophrenic, that I was, you know, a host of different things, I would read the DSM and then take a dictionary and, and work to decode. And then in the DSM, it would give recommendations for approaches. <laughs> and so I would, I would, to the best of my ability, figure out approaches that would begin to diminish the, the red flag behaviors and do what I could to mitigate obvious psychotic or behaviors that would give them an out to pathologize me. And I, I it, one of the homes, the receiving home, children's shelter, I met a woman, Jean Kerr, who was willing to be my mother, adopt me, but my social worker wasn't going to have that. And the listeners can go and watch I Am Somebody's Child, the Regina Louise story on Amazon Prime to get the, the full story on that. And I don't want to unpack that right now, but I was able to take the 15 minutes of love and acknowledgement that she gave me and 
no different than the parable of the feeding of the 5,000, I was able to scale that kindness into a working world of view, if you will, of multiplying using what I had in that, in that idea of, of scaling multiplicity, right? You take one fish, you feed a 5,000, you take a loaf of bread. So for me, you take one smile and you make 5,000 connections. You take optimism. I took optimism and scaled that into, as long as I was optimistic, people didn't feel responsible for me. As long as I was optimistic, it, gave, it, it relieved people of the burden of needing to deal with me. And the upshot for me is I became hope. I've never been one to wait for hope. I've never been passive around that because to do so, as you know, in my book, to me is akin to taking a car that has no wheels, putting it on cinder blocks and sitting in that car and pretending one's way to that much coveted destination. Whereas for me, I become the car, okay? I am the car and I am taking off no matter how, if I have to go on the rims alone, we're doing this. So I believe in being the embodiment of the qualities I need, I seek, if you will. And that way I get to employ the fullness of my sovereign being on behalf of what it is I choose to be in this life. I emancipated at 19 and I endured solitary confinement. I was in solitary confinement during the same time that Nelson Mandela was interned on Robben Island. And yeah, I was my um, child. Before we get to the book, I really want to get into the permission granted to your book, but I think of the demographics of our show it's been going now for 16 years 17 years something like that and it's primarily white women educated and i was really aware in reading your book of the ways you were treated and acted towards by white women and not to make a statement about all white women or anything but i want to talk about what it's like to be in a black body and be a woman and grow up in your circumstances and meet the challenges and the criticisms and the stereotypes and the unconscious things that people say. Can you communicate to that? Because you're someone who's passionate and feels deeply. Tell us about that. So many areas of unconscious presence that just, uh, is in the culture, it's in the field. And I'd like to take an opportunity to at least pierce that just a little bit and hear some of your experiences that you share about in the book too. But 
just the whole being in a black body and working, making money, the being going to places, being recognized for things. There's so many areas that white body people don't even have an awareness that they're going on. Can you right. talk to that a little bit? I'll try. That's a hard, I, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot, I know. And, and it's just a tiny bit vague, but I, I'm going to, it's, it's a big question, right? And so I'm going to, give me a second to feel my way into it. I don't want to just assume I have, you know, right. the, the answer to that. So just give I me a moment that. Yeah. to give myself a moment to make sure that I keep myself safe, keep my psyche safe, keep my inner child safe I got to make sure she's going to let me talk about what I need to talk about without putting myself at risk okay Let, let's I will take this from this place of being cast by many as too big that I am too big so in almost every circumstance I have been in. Mostly I am one of two, three, maybe four black people, but I've navigated through this world in and out of the veil as W.E.B. Dubois talks about the double consciousness. So I've navigated the veils of that double consciousness and in so doing, because I was not raised, after 15, there were no adults in my life. There, were no, there was no one to model, there were no examples, there was no one feeding my consciousness, feeding my intellect, growing me up, no one had any expectations, nothing. I was, I was in the world as alone as I was ever going to be. So with that said, I cultivated a self that, that wouldn't allow myself to believe the stories that people said about me. Black people don't ski. Black people don't own dogs. And on and on and on and on. So none of that stuff. I made sure I skied. I, I just overturned the projections. It became a lifestyle really to, just to over, overturn the projections. So when I had a dream and from that dream, I awoke, had another experience of running into my father and then wrote a book received a six-figure advance to book deal, I had no idea what I had done. I just know that I listened and I opened and I, I followed my authenticity. And that led me to be accepted at a prominent writing retreat. I had no idea what I was getting into. I, I, had, I had never 
known what a writing retreat was. I overheard somebody talking about it. I researched it. And then I just applied. I got in like that. I didn't understand what I was doing. I had no idea what objective correlative was, the, the T.S. Eliot uh, concept regarding writing. I knew nothing. All I knew was my instinct. Yes, 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 follow it. You're safe, it's okay. And I will never forget. I have, my memory is one of my superpowers. So I listen to words on a very deep level and I connect to the energy in words, they, they tell me a lot, they communicate with me. And that the inner, the energetic synergy of words, they, they land in my body in a particular way. And then I have a ability to, to memorize and commit, I think they call it off book words, the energy of the words, how they synergistically create worlds. And at this, I'm talking some of the most canonized writers in the American canon are at this writing retreat. I am the, I'm, I am the only black woman in the memoir class and I turn in the five pages that got me admitted to this experience and the teacher, the facilitator rather, who led that course, took my writing as an example of all this great stuff, which I couldn't speak to because I didn't understand. And I didn't, I was quite untutored in, in understanding the mechanics of craft. And he used it as an example and I could feel all the energy in the room shifting because part of my hypervigilance from coming, coming from such a traumatic background, I, I, I'm, I can have a pattern of being incredibly hypervigilant, but also I've trained myself to turn that hypervigilance into other skills so that I can employ them on my own behalf as opposed to being run by a traumatic response. So, in that class, my skills were on high alert because nothing about it was familiar. The faces, the grimaces, the, the ways that people came back at the writing, it felt very personal as opposed to keeping their responses about the writing. So suddenly I felt unsafe. I didn't know at the time that I was unsafe because it was a bit out of context for me, but my body began to have reactions, triggers. And so after that class, and this guy was like, wow, this is amazing and boom, boom. And I couldn't, I couldn't meet him because I didn't understand what amazing, what made it amazing. Again, most of these people were in MFA programs. I didn't even know what an MFA was, okay? I'm like, what? Put it this way. When I initially wrote what I wrote 
And one of my clients, because I was a hairdresser at the time, said, I have a professor at UC Berkeley. You should send your work to her. I sent the work to this professor at UC Berkeley. She gets back to me and says, oh my God, what a voice you have. And I'm like, white people are so weird. Like, I didn't sing. You didn't hear me sing. What does this writing have to do with my voice? She laughed for like 15 minutes. So that's the realm in which I was, I was endeavoring in. Anyway, so again, I was sort of mute in the class because I didn't get it. I had no way to come back and defend myself, which I should have never needed to defend myself, but I had no way to engage because I, I, I just, at that time, we were all on different levels. So I'm gonna slow down because I don't want to privilege their response and to actually believe that there was something wrong with me. I'd be very careful in how I contextualize this. I'm gonna slow down and I'm gonna own the truths of that situation. I trusted my authenticity. I wrote what I wrote on behalf of what was true for me in the moment, beyond the tutored experience, beyond the MFAs, the PhDs. I didn't have a degree at that time. It was organic. And I want to acknowledge my soul for the gift of that organic experience. So if I were to extend compassion to them and forgiveness to myself, for one iota believing that there was something wrong with me, let me in this moment do so. I forgive myself for taking on any belief that that situation created that there was something wrong with me. So with that said, I feel like I just course corrected and my soul feels freer. So we were on different planes, the women in the group and myself, we were on different planes and not having the insight then that I have now, I continued <laughs> into this learning that of course I'm actually kind of getting now I attended a a luncheon I, I think it was at lunchtime rather I attended accidentally a what do they call that an open mic experience and they were handing out tickets and I was like, yeah, I'm good. And, and this person I was with was like, let's take a ticket. We'll probably never get picked. I was like, okay, sure, I'll take a ticket. And of course, I got picked to come up to the mic and read a piece. And the piece I read was a piece that he had, my, my teacher had worked. We had explored it in the memoir workshop. And so I understood a little bit more about it from his perspective, from their perspective. And so anyway, I had that piece committed because what no one knew is when I, when I traveled to New York and met with 
seven of the most prestigious publishing companies in the world, the way that I pitched them was I read my book from my body to them, what I had written the first five pages. So I took those same first five pages and I stood at the mic and I dropped into the dialect of my younger self, a girl from South Austin, 1970s. And I did what I did from memory. And if what's amazing is I think to Amanda Gorman and I think how she used her hands to just, you know, gesticulate and, 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 and express using her whole body to give us the mountain we climb. We've come a long way from that day to that moment in January at the presidential inauguration as a culture. And so there I was in that place using, you know, the body keeps score, right? So my body is present, it's in the moment. And it is, it is the conduit for this rhythmic and organic experience. It, it dictates the cadence. And I go boom, 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 boom. And I say what I say. If somebody was asked me how I came to be here, I swear for God, I wouldn't know what to say to them. My whole life, I always wanted to be able to tell stories about how I came into the world of woman and special child. But the folks that I live with, <laughs> they told stories about my mama that wasn't even meant for children's ears. If somebody was to ask me, this is what I tell them, that God had gave me a mouth and mind of my own to do what I say there. So I went from there. And when I was done, it was sort of like an awkward applause. And I could again feel a, a, a tension or a discomfort that was similar to what I experienced maybe two hours before in the workshop. And the things that the women said to me blew me out. I was told things like, how dare you take Gwendolyn Brooks or Toni Morrison or Alice Walker. They're like, they've been done. Who are you to take their voice? And you basically just stole. And I didn't know that the best of writers are linguistic thieves. <laughs> I didn't even know that that was permissionable. And so they're coming and they're saying what they're saying. And I am every hue of red that is possible on the spectrum of color. I feel I'm hot. I want to fight. I want to slay the dragons that are attacking me. And I was tongue-tied. 
and the no one stopped then. I didn't even register that until I began to write about it much later. And it, it was just that they were right. They got to say what they got to say. And here's the thing. I have always been a human being that listens to the whisperings of my soul. So I listened to how my body responded to that situation. And I made a commitment that that would never happen again. I would never not understand a situation like that. And what I learned is every time thereafter that I attended a retreat or a, a writing workshop where I was the only black woman, similar things happened. It, 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 similar things happened. And I, again, untutored, not, I didn't know how to protect myself. So although that was scathing, although that, no, it was scalding. My own ignorance, my own what I did not know, my own feeling of needing to privilege that narrative in order to understand what was happening for me. And so instead of going, allowing that amygdala to open up a can of straight up kick-ass on those women, I, because, and that's an interesting place to, to stop for a moment and to recognize how violent that's interesting because that just, just saying what I just said invites me to look at what happens to me in the face of a narrative that I do not feel as though I have the keys to the kingdom to a narrative that is determined to be the missionaries of my mother tongue, of my artistic expression, of my craft and convert me away from the truth of my own being and to say, I was a thief, I was hackneyed, I was unoriginal, and I did not have permission to be who I was, to express the way that I expressed. And I didn't have the insight then that I had now, but I did know enough to not allow it to completely force me to run and hide and to put my work into that proverbial desk drawer and close that drawer. I refused to do that. I wasn't going to do that. Because then I thought, if this is creating this, <laughs> this must be some good shit right here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, whoa. <laughs> wow. If everybody I'm around is getting so activated, there's something here. I may not know what it is. But, and I remember asking the, the, the man who, the man who, who had chosen me to be in his memoir class. Later, 
came up to me and said, I'd like to sit with you. And he took me for an ice cream. It was one of those moments that I'll never forget because growing up the way I did without parents to guide me through the streets of everyday life, to have a man, kind man, take me to get an ice cream and then to say, I would like to acquire your manuscript. Mm. And I had no idea that when I said the next thing that I said, that he too would become similar to how those women had become dismissive, angry, irritated. And I said, I already sold the book. And then he went and did his research and then they all pulled me aside and said, you really shouldn't be here. I, it was mind blowing. They were like, because this is a place for people who haven't sold the book. This is a place where we discover people. And so, hmm, again, I feel my, I feel the truth of what I just said. Mm -hmm. I feel the, uh, the sadness. I feel the hurt, but I couldn't feel it then because it was unsafe and I get that now. Mm. Well, let Rachel me Louise, there's so much in what you're saying. I, I wanna, first of all, you, you talk about this experience in your book, of course, and uh, I was really deeply, deeply touched by it. But I was just deeply touched about what you just did. and I. Just in case no one noticed, I just want to say I was so moved because first you slowed down and owned your experience. You trusted your experience. You looked to see what's the authentic experience I'm having. Am I aligned with what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, what I'm emotionally feeling, and what I'm sensing in my body? And you look to your soul's gift to, did you need to correct course in your expression? What's happening inside? What might be shut down that's open? Feeling your own truth, the sadness that was there and checking for safety. I mean, you just did that in that one saying, which is just a beautiful teaching. I, I just want to thank you for that expression of it. And your book, of course, Permission Granted, Kick-Ass Strategies to Bootstrap Your Way to Unconditional Self-Love is how we got together here to talk about this book. Yeah. And regardless of color, we all have so many limitations, you know, that we're, we're up against, you know, familial traumas, ancestral, cultural, all of the beliefs that we have. You mentioned uh, early attachment issues, major trauma in, in half the people on the planet around just attachment, let alone event traumas. And you survived this and not only survived, you thrived Talk about transcending our believed limitations. 
Mm. Wow. That's beautiful. And interesting. Transcending believed limitations. So I'm going to answer this question intuitively. <laughs> so let's just go with what shows up here. Most limitations for me were never self-imposed. The limitations that I have experienced were and still are a result of not having a network, opportunities. So most of the, if not all of the limitations and the, the limitation of, of not even knowing what a limitation is in and of itself. If I go back to that experience with what happened at that writing retreat, the limitations for me were a result of, as Paolo Fieri would say, a banking system education. I did not have the keys to the kingdom. I did not understand the language of craft. That was a limitation of outside of myself because those who set the perimeters of understanding that, they held the keys. And so the language in which my work was dealt with, I, I didn't have access to that. And that opportunity, that experience became an opportunity, became a gateway for me to transcend that particular limitation. Because I think limitations can be, it, it's, it, it's so big, it's situational, cultural, but in that case, the limitation was my untutored awareness of the craft of writing. And like I said, that liberated me, but not simply because of what it was, but more so because I transcended consensually, volitionally, not knowing. I had to transcend, I had to accept the fact that, and then I had to ask myself, do I wanna go into that realm? Do I wanna privilege, is that the only way? I said, well, you know what? It may not be the only way, but it is a way, so I'm gonna take that. And with that, I, most of all of the success I have had around writing, I did not have an MFA, I did not have a bachelor's. But with that situation and another situation where someone wanted to hire me to, to come and speak and when they were told my price, they said, 
she's an ex-foster child. How can she actually command such a price? It's not even legit. She's not legit. Those things let me get a view of how the world, how the outside world saw me. And I would imagine all of us can take the limiting situations that we've had, the experiences where, you know, that axiom where one door closes, another opens. So I, I believe in that. And so we can all look at those experiences where we feel shut out. And then in that feeling of shut out, what opens for us? So those two experiences with a host of others became gateways for me. And so I, I applied to a university that would accept some of my life experience as part of the, to supplement the curriculum that I did not have in order to go back to school and finish a degree because right out of, right out of foster care, because I didn't know any other way to be, I went to college because it gave me a home and it gave me a place to be. And I couldn't finish though because I didn't have the support. So fast forward to 2011, I knew that I wanted to understand writing. I wanted, I had to. So although I had a lot of success, I had a book, I had a movie in the making. I spoke all over the country. When it came to me needing to explain how the writing found me and craft, I couldn't do it in a way where in privileged spaces, it, it was respected. So I went to school. I have a PhD equivalent in writing. So if I look at that prior to the PhD equivalent in writing, one could look at my circumstances and say, I was surrounded in limitation, but I don't believe in being defeated. It's not an option. It's never been an option for me. Feeling sorry for myself has never been an option. It's, let's go to W.H. Auden. I've never seen a wild thing feel sorry for itself. That's pretty much my life motto. So being that wild thing and loving that wild thing, this wild thing, and never privileging myself to feel sorry for myself any longer than is necessary to allow a hurt, a slight, a betrayal to move through me. Mm. The only limitation I know that is eternal is when we're dead limitation itself dies, <laughs> you know? And here's the thing, limitation doesn't come for me. Limitation is something 
that I go to out of frustration, out of not knowing, out of anybody, any one of us. Limitation isn't a destination that we arrive at. It is a concept. It is a, it is a, it is a constructed reality that we assign ourselves to. No different than transformation being a, a, a construct, a possibility. Right? It's, it's. Yes. Yeah. I, there's so much in, in what you said, and I love loving our inner wildness. That's, that's such a, a, a beautiful thing to even contemplate. Some people don't even recognize they have an inner wildness. But I want to, I want to go back to question one thing that you said, and maybe it's just, um, syntax or the, the way it was said, but that was the about for you. Now you were saying for you, but for many people, particularly working with a lot of trauma survivors and being one myself, there is a self-imposed limitation that I see. And that's not a bad thing because if, for instance, in a situation of trauma, trauma being an event happens, it's overwhelming, too fearful. Our nervous system says too much, it pushes it down and it keeps, and so we have frozen past in our body. But when those traumas happen, somebody yells at us, somebody hits us, something happens, particularly from a caregiver. In order to understand that, because we don't, make our at that early age we don't make our care rigors wrong it's it's like something's wrong and it's not just something's wrong it's something's wrong with me i'm unlovable i'm unworthy i can't i can't basically a self-imposed limitation now if it were the trauma that was the cause of any of that we would have no regress because the trauma happened in the past. But our stories go on well into the future, sometimes through the lifetime and lifetimes. And that it's a limitation that we've created in response to an event or a trauma means that when we create the space for it, to arise in us. And you, you talk in your book about the stillness and the importance of slowing down, then those unexperienced experiences that we've had in the past arise so that we can actually reparent ourselves and be the loving parent, be the parent that hears us, being the one that holds us and nurtures us so we're in a sense reparenting and and in that way going transcending the self-imposed limitations does that make sense uh, absolutely it's yeah. beautiful so but it's not indelible it's a beautiful segue to so we get triggered a trauma an experience reminds us of a trauma. A partner speaks to us in a way that creates an immediate tear and disconnection. We then 
go into transference, meaning we see that person as the original person who created that original trauma. So now we're in a trance. We don't know we're in a trance because now we're going to respond to that partner the way we would or didn't that parent. Mm -hmm. So let's assume that the experience happens. We're in the trance and we're six years old. Now, part of what's also happening in this trance is the good enough mother is unavailable. So not only is the internal good enough mother ourselves not available, as is the external good enough mother is not available. So now this child in this transference gets to feel the emotional signature of their own trauma, of how this trauma happened for them. And then what happens is the reason they're in the trance in the first place is because there was no good enough mother on duty. And so the, the, the patterns of self-abandonment, dissociation, because the act in and of itself and being in the trance is, uh, is dissociation from reality, mm -hmm. from self. So here we are in this trance, if you will. And the only limitation in my understanding, because I'm in right now, as I'm sharing this with you, I am partially, the, my good enough mother is on board and I'm somewhat in a transference state. I'm in that place, right? Yep. I'm in that place of transference, that trance. And what I can see is, ah, my good enough mother. Ah, I can hold myself. Ah, I know the pain of self-abandonment. I know the pain of what it feels like to dominate. I know the pain of feeling as though I am not good enough. Those are the patterns that I'm going to identify in that interaction that led me into the transference trance in the first place. So now I step out of that. It's now with you and I. And so I look back and I can say to my, I can look back as a good enough mother and go, ah, I experienced my partner as domineering, as engaged in a power differential, as critical and I can experience my partner as abandoning me. Those are the states that I can, uh, patterns that I can identify in that particular yeah. trance. Now, the work I get to do is to say, how do I dominate myself? How do I go into a power differential myself? Yeah. How do I do these things to myself because that's actually what's happening. My partner is only a, a profound teacher in swinging open the gateway to my trance, to those unhealed, unrecognized traumas that as a child, in order to belong, in order to stay a part of the pack, I swallow, I, as you said, it gets suppressed. Yet here we are in this moment of unlimited potential, Michael Stone, to go in, <laughs> to go down to the place where spirit meets bone, my brother. 
and reclaim the strength, the beauty, the love, the essence of who we truly are from that trance state, from that trauma, and transform that back into the wholeness of who we are. And then we thank the partner. Because see, me, the only limitation lies within the untutored state of unawareness. Yeah. That's how I see it. Oh, so well said. You know, so much more, Regina Louise, that I'd love to talk about. We may have to do another show. But one of the things that you talk about towards the end of Permission Granted, kick-ass strategies to bootstrap your way to unconditional self-love and wonderful, full of, of great opportunities to look inward and to step into our own courage, our own agency, our own autonomy. It's just a, a beautiful book. But at the end, you talk about being a hope. And you, my dear, are a hope. <laughs> Thank mm. you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on We Earth Radio. And like I said, we'll just have to do another one to cover more areas, but it was just lovely to spend this hour with you. Michael Stone, as I said, you know, I am a female identified, Black identified creative. And you know, as well as I know, how sometimes opportunities for people who look like me, write like me, move through the world like me are limited, okay? And I want to say to you once more, thank you for being willing to share your platform with me, for privileging my perspective in a way that I had never ever imagined when this book sat down and wrote itself. Mm. So thank you so much. I am in full appreciation. And if people want to connect with me, because I will have some offerings coming up to support us all through the holiday and winter months, please subscribe to my website, www.iamreginalouise.com. And I love Instagram. And my handle is the real Regina Louise. So what else would it be? <laughs> oh, much love to you, my dear. Thank Bye. you so much. Thank you, Michael. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.